there are no experts about tomorrow. That's why having that beginner's mindset, that's why recognizing as business leaders, when we're trying to serve society and our stakeholders, speed and relevance are the most important currencies. Welcome to Joyful Sundays, a podcast delivering weekly insights, inspiration, and tools to live a more conscious, connected, and intentionally meaningful life. Join us as we go into the minds of some of the world's most inspiring leaders to discover the keys to unlocking your best self. In the midst of a global pandemic, there has never been a more important time to reflect on how we want to emerge, what we value, who we are at our cores, and how we want to reflect those North Star values in the lives we build post a global crisis. I'm your host, Jody Kovitz. Over a year ago at Elevate Toronto, I was so lucky to meet an incredible human being, Vala Afshar. Vala is a digital marketing evangelist, an author, and a massive Twitter storyteller. He contributes his stories around technology, business, and leadership to a variety of leading publications, as well as co-hosting the weekly video show, Disrupt TV. Vala was generous from the moment I met him, and I remember that moment like it was yesterday. We were both at Elevate Tech Fest in Toronto. Bella had heard me speak about moving the dial. And as soon as I introduced myself, he said, I remember you from this morning. How can I help? I was blown away by that generosity of spirit, remembering that Bella has over 450,000 Twitter followers. I couldn't even believe he recognized me. And that generosity of spirit is why I wanted to have him on today. Welcome to Joyful Sundays, Bella. Thank you so much for having me. Before I get started with all of my questions for you today, how are you and your family doing? Thank you for asking. We're doing terrific. You know, obviously all of us are struggling with the quarantine, but some are struggling so much more than others. And I have the privilege of having my mom and dad living with us. I can't even imagine going through this and not having my parents with us. And we're on Zoom calls with family members and friends and colleagues, and uh, trying to cope like the rest of us. Your positive attitude and outlook is one of the things I admire most about you. And I felt in some ways like I knew you from your social presence and messages before I met you here in Toronto at Elevate last year. Just to get us started, I actually was preparing to talk to you today and saw your tweet, which was you know, grounded in gratitude for when you meet smart people. But what you tweeted was, what you admire most are the qualities of kindness, humility, optimism, generosity, and shared knowledge. So before I ask you to share a little bit more about your origin story and perspectives on leadership, I'd love to ask you at the highest level to you, what's the mix of the most important two to three traits in a great leader? Thank you for reading my tweets. That's awesome. <laughs> well, you know, you and I are very fortunate. When I first met you, you were on a big stage talking to thousands of best and brightest business leaders and thought leaders and best-selling authors at an amazing conference in Toronto. So we do get to meet really smart, remarkable people all the time. I work for a super smart company and a successful company. And, and so I have the good fortune of being in front of CEOs and being in front of people that are really, as Steve Jobs once famously said, putting a dent in the universe. But the ones I remember 
most. The ones that stay with me and inspire me are the ones that are accessible, they're kind, their generosity exceeds my expectations in terms of how they're willing to share. They're radically transparent while they're talking about their journey to success. So the folks that I remember uniformly all are super smart, but as I guess I mentioned the tweet, the ones I admire, the ones that I'd like to mimic my own thinking and behavior are the ones that show their genuine human spirit and soul. And I think it's trustworthiness. The folks I remember immediately have a way of demonstrating trustworthiness. And the best definition I have for that is Rachel Botsman, who wrote the book, Who Can You Trust? She's a lecturer at Oxford. And she said that trustworthiness is a combination of competence plus character. And she took the competence piece and she said that's really the combination of capability and reliability. You have to be both. You have to be a reliable person and a capable person, and that's your competence. And the character portion of the equation, she broke down to integrity plus benevolence. Yes, I love that word. There's a chapter in my book called Conscious Benevolence. It's beautiful that you just said that. Exactly. So I think leaders that are able to articulate their intent, why is it They're doing what they're doing, not so much the how and the what, but why. And over time, demonstrate capability, reliability, integrity, and benevolence, earn the right to a followership, earn the right to attention. I'm fascinated by sort of how you framed that because I'm a voracious studier of great leaders. I started reading biographies when I was very young. I read Golda Meir's My Life about 15 times when I was 10. I'm fascinated by the personality traits and the character ethos of what makes great leaders, but I'm also fascinated by how those leaders actually then, with intentionality, act to express those traits. And having been a CEO now twice, it's fascinating how much energy it requires to stay committed to those North Star leadership values, right? When you're in the trenches and things are hard and you don't necessarily feel like being transparent. Where is an example of where you sort of have noticed the power of bringing the intentionality around that radical transparency or trust building with people you've led in the past? I'm a first-gen immigrant refugee, so very abruptly, my family and I moved to the U.S., and it took my father four years to join us. Difficult circumstances, but my father was a successful executive, and then when we moved to the States, because of age, language barrier, a number of reasons, even though he had multiple master's degrees and had an incredible organization that he was leading, he wasn't able to find suitable work. In fact, he was third shift security guard. That's the only work he could find. But I remember mornings when I'm heading to school and he's coming back from work and evenings when I'm going to bed and he's leaving the house, smile, hug. So I reflect on maintaining a positive attitude. And maybe the biggest lesson I learned from both him and my mom is that the world doesn't owe you a thing. So fight against a sense of entitlement. And as a leader, as you grow with more influence, bigger budget, more headcount, more success, The higher you are climbing the mountain, the less no's you hear, the more expectations you have of people that you work with and folks you serve. So it's very easy to drift away from your core values and guiding principles because success gives you an opportunity to perhaps not stay true to the core values that got you to where you are now. So I always think about my parents falling down hard from a mountain of success and having to do a redo, 
but never losing their gratitude, their mindfulness, their appreciation for life and family. I had shivers when you were telling the story, picturing your father smiling at you in those moments and the power of our choice and our agency and our mindset and the ability of your father to inspire you to sort of bring that set of values to your life is just so incredible. And I'm so grateful for it. I think a lot about when I met you and when we started to talk more deeply, your value set and sort of the beacon of service to the universe, generosity of spirit. It was so fitting for me that you worked at Salesforce, which had always been a company for me that I loved, admired from the sidelines until I got closer to it, becoming a partner and client. But I always saw Salesforce as a real North Star to the work that I have been doing around advancing equality. But I'd love to hear a little bit about when you joined Salesforce, why you joined Salesforce. Let's start there. I was introduced to Salesforce in 2003. I was a vice president of engineering, running an engineering function at a technology company. And my boss, the CEO, asked me to expand my responsibilities to include customer service and support. And this was a multi-hundred million dollar part of our business, arguably the most profitable, most important line of business, our services business. And in 2003, I realized we didn't have a customer relationship management tool To be honest with you, I didn't even know what CRM was at that time. But in terms of meeting with the team, understanding their incredibly unquenchable thirst for innovation, for helping companies be successful, we decided to choose this young up-and-coming company in the West Coast. And I was based in Boston. So picking a West Coast company to build our CRM practice. And fast forward 12 years of being a customer, the reason I chose to join Salesforce was because they helped me grow my business, helped me delight my customers. So I joined Salesforce in 2015. I wrote my book in 2012, and the book was about how my company leveraged Salesforce to grow and be successful. So as a customer, with all the vendors that we had partnered with, I chose to pick one and write a book about them. And we were named the fourth best company to work for in Boston out of 1,600 companies. Upon reflection of why did we have such a great net promoter score? Why were we able to triple our revenue? Why were we able to have employee retention less than 2% for seven straight years? It all pointed to Salesforce. So that was what the book was about. The book led to articles. People wanted to learn more about lessons learned in the book. So I started writing for Huffington Post. And because I'm a terrible writer and it's almost like a root canal experience for me, I started a weekly podcast so I can interview people that I had met on Twitter, believe it or not. So in 2015, the president of products at Salesforce and I uh, had a conversation and he said, you know, you wrote a book about us, you're writing articles, you have a weekly podcast, you're doing a lot of evangelism about cloud computing and importance of CRM. Perhaps you should consider doing that inside of our business. And honestly, I felt like maybe for a decade, I was subconsciously trying to interview for a position. And, you know, without sounding braggadocious, I had an opportunity to work, I was going to say anywhere, but that's not true. You know, I had a lot of options. And going back to, again, my immigrant roots, the fact that I knew the company as a customer. So I had the good fortune for more than a decade to actually see Salesforce in action from founder to single contributors. And the DNA of the company was just all about equality, innovation, generosity, humility. So it was an easy choice. I just felt like I could become a better person, not just a business person, a person, a father, a brother, a husband, you know, by working at a company that could bring you joy. And it emanates, right, from what you do. And 
how you share the story. And for me, it's a super fascinating case study of having an incredible product that solves a really big problem in many different ways for all different kinds of people and companies because of the diversity of thought that you make sure you have at your design leadership and governance tables. Like that's a huge part of it, actually, in my view. So let's talk a little bit about the leadership lessons that you can share in terms of your experience leading with Salesforce through COVID. I noticed that the company quickly undertook several quite significant initiatives, um, both in terms of product and in terms of heart. Can you talk a little bit about what the company has done for the community, uh, the massive PPE effort to respond? You're absolutely right in terms of the responsiveness. 50,000 employees received notification in late February, no more travel, your safety is the most important. So we were a trailblazer in terms of the size of the company and responding to science and the data, putting emotions, politics, prior beliefs aside, and really just following the science. And to have a company that's positioned for movement, when we talk about speed, you can only achieve optimal speed if you're built for movement. And it takes so much of culture, talent, process, and technology, combination of all of that to be able to do that. Now, being able to procure and give away 60 million PPEs, we just announced recently a product that helps companies address the pandemic. And you know, we have extraordinary people, futurists that work in our company that immediately were mobilized. Someone like Peter Schwartz. Peter Schwartz was the person that partnered with Steven Spielberg for the movie Minority Report, as an example. He's a world-renowned futurist. In February, we were thinking about scenario planning. The economic impact of the pandemic could be 18 months to three years from now. So there's a lot of scenarios based on V-shaped, Y-shaped, and all these different potential economic recovery based on assumptions like potential second or third wave and social distancing practices being governed strictly and being able to do contact tracing. So all this multidimensional scenario planning led to, there's really three phases. There's a stabilization phase that we're still going through, a reopening phase where some of the companies are starting, and then a growth phase. And within each of these phases, the leadership principles will govern how we decide how we work with each other, how we serve our external stakeholders. And then the fourth and arguably the most important dimension, how can we allow business to improve society, whether it's philanthropic efforts or providing the right tools that are affordable, accessible for businesses to successfully reopen and ultimately get back to a growth stage. And there is nothing we can look back to that has such an enormous, significant event in such a short amount of time. So The one thing that's really important upon reflection when we talk about these numbers that our minds can't quite grapple with is that there are no experts about tomorrow. That's why having that beginner's mindset, that's why recognizing as business leaders, when we're trying to serve society and our stakeholders, speed and relevance are the most important currencies. You have to be able to find ways to be valuable and help companies, individuals, organizations get back on track quickly, given the unbelievable destructive nature of both the macro and micro level economic impact of COVID-19. So this is why culture really matters. I've always said to my teams in the past, culture is what happens when the managers leave the room. In the absence of authority, do you do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons? It's such a beautiful thing. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story with me. And certainly early on when I was monitoring the world, I actually would go to Salesforce's website to read 
what the state of the nation was, because I think your communication strategy with your customers, obviously with your employees, but being on the outside with the world, you know, you made it easy for us to then have news that was super current, super helpful. And you were very early, actually, and proactive. I remember you transformed one of your live events in Australia, I believe it was, to virtual. After I saw that happen, when I was quite aware of what the cost of doing that would have been to the company, is the moment in my heart I decided to cancel our summit, which was very hard to do. We were expecting three to 5,000 this year. But I remember thinking, wow, Salesforce is so ahead of the curve. You know, I have to learn from that leadership and be a bold enough and visionary enough leader to do the hard thing, but the right thing. And so I appreciate that. And you might not know the impact of like the posting regularly on your website and sharing with your customers so transparently had such a massive impact on me personally personally, as a leader. So thank you for that. I'd love to ask you, you're a voracious reader as I am and student of life and are so deeply passionate about innovation. So being Canadian, where's the puck going? If you had to make a prediction or two around what will see thrive in the innovation economy of the future? What are some opportunities that our listeners should get curious about? Would love to hear any thoughts or ideas you have, given how many people you speak to and how much reading and thinking you do about these issues. First of all, Canada is incredibly well positioned to be a leader in the new norm. Canada is one of the most educated countries in the world. 55% of adults have college degrees. Canada is more connected than the US, north of 90% connected to the internet, about 70% with smart devices. U.S., I believe, is around 88% and mid-60 in terms of smart devices. So as far as education and connectivity, some argue that second to Silicon Valley, Canada, in terms of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning, you have Dr. Jeffrey Hinton, who's considered the godfather of deep learning, machine learning with the Vector Institute and Toronto University. So as far as history of really advanced technology, and I believe AI is electricity in the 21st century. So the most important technology is artificial intelligence. And brain trust in Canada is, again, arguably only second to Silicon Valley. So as far as education, connectivity, and expertise, we all need to understand the impact post-pandemic. But certainly before COVID, you had one of the most thriving startup ecosystems in Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto. In fact, Salesforce in 2019, committed to $2 billion over a four-year period of investing in Canada with headcount and offices. And in fact, I and the Salesforce Ventures team in 2019 announced a $130 million venture fund for startups in Canada focused on cloud computing and AI technologies because we're betting on Canada to help fuel our customers' success and our ecosystem's success. Maybe the most important business lesson is that every company needs to be digital. So I think, for example, for some of us who are fortunate enough, a lesson in 2020 was work is not a place. You can work anywhere. Work is an outcome. Work is results. But dominant logic for years, even for some companies, was that, no, you need to go into a physical space to be able to contribute. So that's dominant logic that was severely challenged. And now it opened up the eyes of many. I think in every dimension of businesses and industries and geographies, you can point to significant opportunities for us to think differently. And I'm not saying technology is the answer for everything. I think ultimately you have to ask better questions in order to lead yourself to better answers. And when I think of success as an operator for 20 years and now a researcher and connector at Salesforce, my critical success factors 
will always start with culture, people, process, and lastly, technology. I actually really appreciate that perspective. I think sometimes we get a little stuck on the technology and we don't understand that all of the other pieces are what power the success and impact of that technology. I love talking to Vala about the work of Rachel Botsman, who wrote the book, Who Can You Trust? The study of trust has been another subject that I've been fascinated by my entire life. I do believe that more and more in this world where we become increasingly disconnected, particularly right now during a global pandemic when we're all working from our own homes and having to connect through technology, there's actually never ever been a more important time to show up in a benevolent way, which is the act of meaning well or kindness. And from my perspective, this idea of conscience benevolence, which I wrote about in my book, is really about choosing to show up intentionally every day at every opportunity with kindness and the best of intentions and then acting and following through on that intention. And as we think about how we want to emerge from this pandemic, particularly when we think about the fact that one in four Americans will not have a job and that the unemployment rate in Canada is currently at the highest it's ever been, it's going to take all of us being consciously benevolent, going out of our way to help individuals who otherwise will not be able necessarily to procure new opportunities, to develop skills, to build networks. And I love this notion of really as an act of building trust, the more we can follow through on our well-meaning intentions, the more we can actually have an impact. You and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, and I so enjoyed the conversation. We shared one of our great concerns coming out of COVID and a global pandemic is really the disproportionate impact on already marginalized people. We've started to see tons of articles coming out written by leaders like Sheryl Sandberg, of course, around this topic, Melinda Gates. And I think we all need to be quite vocal on this topic. I fear we are taking a step back. And so what is your perspective on what leaders in positions of power can do to actually be bolder in our approach to not only recovery equality, but going further out of our way to do more, to move the dial mindful of the massive impact, particularly with the news recently of the impact disproportionately on people of color. It's so upsetting that I'm really curious if you have any ideas or thoughts to share with anyone who is looking to do more. It's an incredibly important topic. In the U.S., African-American population represent about 13% of the total population, yet they represent, I believe, over 25% of the COVID-19-related deaths, so 2x the proportion. So there's no question the science and data points to greater adversity, greater difficulty, greater negative outcomes for the minority population in the U.S. I think that you have to have a very authentic approach when you talk about big topics like this, meaning your thoughts, your words, and your actions have to be aligned. You can't just think about it or have inaction that doesn't quite speak to you know how you can make a difference. I'll give you an example. At Salesforce, a majority of the executives are actively sponsor schools. I sponsor a middle school in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And what it means in terms of sponsorships is I periodically go and visit the school, meet with the students. Salesforce as a company has donated hundreds of millions of dollars to schools. You know, if you have a child in middle school right now, seven out of 10 children in middle school will end up with jobs and titles that don't exist yet. 
But how do we ready those youth for those innovative jobs of the future that require so many different skills than what K-12 required, you know, when we were growing up? Absolutely. When we talk about education, three years ago, Salesforce made a decision to make education available for free to anyone in the world with a program we call Trailhead. Now, as a CEO, you'll appreciate this. When we made the decision to make education free for anyone who had access to the internet, at that time, a million people were applying to work at Salesforce on an annual basis. In fact, two of the 10 most popular jobs in the US, according to CIO Magazine at that time, was a Salesforce analyst, Salesforce developer. So we had a business case of creating incremental revenue with Salesforce Academy, in my opinion. In other words, you know, create incremental revenue by actually selling training material. But we decided that in order to have business be the greatest platform for change, we had a civic responsibility to make education for free. Now, fast forward today, there are almost 3 million active learners on our Trailhead platform. We've issued over 20 million badges. And in fact, the badges, in my humble opinion, are more influential, more powerful than your resume or your degree from a university. I know many customers, including Salesforce itself, that look at candidates applying to work at Salesforce and whether they have trailhead badges. So democratizing access because it's free and giving people an opportunity to learn is an example of trying to address that inequality that exists. The other is when I look at the corporate venture capital arm of Salesforce, Salesforce Ventures, I believe we're the third most active CVC, corporate venture capital arm behind, I believe, only Google and Intel Capital. So we have, I think, north of 300 companies in our Salesforce Ventures portfolio. The cadence of investing in a new startup for us is almost once a week now. So the power of being able to invest in entrepreneurs. But one of the key decisions we use in terms of whether we're going to invest in a startup is how many women leaders are in the executive ranks of the startup, how many women are on the board of directors of the startup. And if we find that it's not a balanced company when it comes to equality, we will not invest in the company, regardless of the product, regardless of innovation, regardless of the growth. Well, I think that is proof positive to me of the bold leadership. People say, what is a North Star? It's about putting your feet and your actions where your words are. And that is not something that many do. So I actually appreciate you sharing some of those really tangible examples because a lot of leaders ask me all the time, you know, what can we do? How can we get more women? And how can we get more people who have different lived experiences? Well, you have to actually be a company who lives your values. And people smell when you are not authentic. I'd love to just shift gears a little bit. You and I both value generosity deeply. And truthfully, and I say this very sincerely, you are one of the most kindest and generous executives I've ever met with your level of impact and success that acts with that generosity of spirit. What are some ideas you have around how to apply that generosity of spirit in a more intentional way? Thank you for your kind words. I spent the first 40 years of my career with a silo mindset. I don't know if it was parenting, being an immigrant, my teachers, or even my early managers in my career, but I assumed that you could build influence or you can have a successful career or you can be perceived as a valuable individual by collecting resources, for example, expertise, and protecting those resources and extracting as much value from those resources. So through the first 40 years of my career, I built a large organization, so I had large headcounts. 
I had a large budget. I had a large salary. It was only when I realized, again, in my 40s, that it's not consuming resources, but movement of resources that can really scale your value. So the first tweet, the first blog, the book, the podcast was a way for me to, when I learn something, have it go through me and to others. And it was movement of knowledge that opened a career door for me at one of the best companies in the world. It was movement of resources and knowledge that helped me publish a book and have an amazing network on social media. And, you know, my first tweet was when I was 41. My first blog was 42. My book was 43. My podcast was 44. So first thing is you're never too old to start. Don't let your age or your past experience or lack of experience disqualify you for doing something new, especially if it's completely new. Often because I fight with imposter syndrome, I've walked away from challenges because I felt I didn't have expertise, even though the challenges were unsolved problems where there was no expert. I should have just jumped in and really tackled and innovated and solved the issue instead of being afraid or second-guessing my competence. And so my advice to you is recognize the power and the flow of knowledge. Don't just earn your PhD or become a CEO and be successful by consuming. Think about sharing. And it was Eleanor Roosevelt, I believe, who said, do one thing every day that scares you. So if you have that growth mindset and you're really thinking about flow, like I'm afraid of the articles that I write, yet I've written 50 articles for ZDNet since March. I'm afraid of this podcast, yet I started it. That's right. You know, it's those things, but you're right. And it's inspiring. And I really think a lot about when I started Move the Dial, sort of that fear, you have that moment. And there was that moment for me where I had started it and it was like the little tinder in the flames started to catch and grow. And then I had one person who said, well, you're not really a woman in tech. I mean, you weren't in tech for 20 years. Like, why are you doing this? And I stayed in bed for three days, Vala, because I was doubting myself and questioning myself and I almost stood down. And then a little tiny thing inside of me said, well, like nobody else is doing it. So why not me? I'm going to try. And the worst thing that happens is I fail and I have no impact and I try something else. And that sort of moment of trying and going for it and just learning as you go with an open heart and open mind. And just before we close, I want to ask you one more question before I go to my listener community questions. You are a highly introspective person, clearly, and cultivate mindfulness in your life. I'm fascinated by how real change makers and titans of industry cultivate mindfulness in practice. So can you talk to us and my audience a little bit about your own personal mindfulness practices and what you do to take care of yourself and nourish your own sort of mind, body, soul that you think enables you? I think wisdom is knowing that everyone you meet knows more about something than you do. So I think smart people seek random collisions. At least the smartest people I know, they're just curious and they're interested and they're in the moment. My sense of appreciation, again, I'm fortunate. My parents live with us. I think about the amazing accomplishments that they've had, but I also think about, will they be remembered? See, you and I, as authors, as entrepreneurs, as folks that write and speak at conferences, we have a digital footprint and digital breadcrumb that our children can reference in the future. That's not a luxury that my mom and dad had. So remarkable people, but unlikely that their lives will be remembered in the future. And yet that's the good fortune that I have and my children have. So when I write a blog or I have a podcast or I'm active on social, 
I'm mindful of the fact that as long as the content educates and inspires and ignites positive action, I will be remembered. And there's no better time than now to put yourself out there and be useful. And if you do it in a meaningful way, you'll be remembered. It's beautiful. So my community has a couple of questions for you. And this is going to be a really hard question. What is your favorite book of all times? Clay Christensen wrote, How Do You Measure Your Life? Which was one of the most widely popular Harvard Business Review article. And it was so popular, he ended up writing a book. And it talks about the importance of core values as a business person and a technologist. How do you measure your life? That was a remarkable book. And I know this sounds like a plug, but I mean, Mark's Trailblazer book, I've read it over and over and over again, because there's some words of wisdom. Trailblazer lives on my desk, so I'm aligned. You're a guy who's usually in 300 cities a year. So what is your favorite city to visit and why? I love visiting Toronto. Under normal conditions, I'm in Toronto half a dozen times a year. And I have family there. My first cousins live in Barrie and Aurelia and Toronto proper. So I've visited Toronto maybe 50 times in my life. Well, I can't wait to see you when you come back. And my last question, certainly your father was a massive role model for you. If you could look at a public figure who inspires you, who has taught you, who you want to be like when you grow up, is there somebody who is a role model to you that's out there in the universe that our listeners could check out for some inspiration? To me, when I think role model, it's mom and dad. I want to grow up to be them. There's a lot of extraordinary business leaders, but it's not their technological prowess that leads me to view them as a role model. Well, I think it's a beautiful answer, and I can't wait to hopefully meet them someday and tell them myself how awesome their son is. Thank you so, so much, Vala, for being with me today. I really appreciate it and can't wait to continue to get to know you. I very much look forward to it, and thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to share my thoughts with you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I love talking to Vala about what makes leaders great. And I'm going to take with me from this conversation his frame of being accessible, generous, and radically transparent. These are values that I hold deeply and tried to emulate as a leader as much as I could. And it actually takes, I think, quite a great deal of intentionality to bring your North Star values to active leadership. Leadership, to me, is an act, and it's a conscious choice of your behavior expressed through your actions. It's not enough to have good intentions. We have to act intentionally. And in fact, that has never been a more relevant frame for what the world is going through at the moment, not only in terms of the pandemic, but certainly in terms of the anti-Black racism that we're seeing that is horrific and that many of us are struggling to understand. And I think this frame around leadership traits and building trust has never been more important. When we think about being a person who does what you say you're going to do and acts in alignment with your values, I think for leaders of companies at this time, that idea of building trust in a meaningful way that is integrity-based as well as transparent. I don't think there's ever been a more important time on our planet to lead with integrity and radical transparency, as well as being accessible and open and building a relationship of trust. Thank you for listening to Joyful Sundays. 
the podcast where I have truly inspiring conversations about how to become your best self. If you like this episode, support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating, and a comment. I'm your host, Jody Kovitz. See you next time on Joyful Sundays.